0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hope you guys are uh, in the mood to hear some deep theology. Are you? Are you like, uh) <laughs> First of all, before I, go, before I go into any of that, I just have to send a, a shout out and a thank you uh, to Pastor Craig and Pastor Jack who taught the last couple weeks. Um, they were continuing the series, but they were in Romans 8. Such a deep chapter. They had to break it in half and split it up. They did a fantastic job. Did they not do great? I mean, it was, it was awesome. Normally when somebody else is teaching, I'm not here. And I got the chance to actually be here and sit and watch that and, and be filled up like you guys. So I hope you enjoyed it. As much as I did, um, but this week, um, this week we're going into chapter nine. Chapter nine. Now, first of all, in Romans, if you're new here, or you haven't been coming for a little while. We're working our way through the book of Romans, and the book of Romans, I love it because there's so much theology in the book of Romans. It is. It covers like almost the entire spectrum. Like if you just had to have one book on a desert island somewhere, for me, that'd be the book because it is so full of of uh, just, just information, things, things that we need to know, things that God wants to relay to us about our, our Christian walk and what that Christian life looks like and election and all these, there's just so much in there. So that's where we get to go today. And again, all the way up until chapter eight, which was the last weekend, um, Paul spends a lot of time, the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about what it means to be a Christian versus what it means to be a Jew or a Gentile or anything like that, what it means to come together under this umbrella of of being a Christian, a follower of Christ. And he spends a lot of time saying, hey, I don't care where you came from, what your background is, that in itself doesn't mean much, doesn't account for much. So we're going forward now. Now that we know that where you came from doesn't mean much, I know you think it does, but it doesn't, so let's get together and move forward. That's kind of where we are now. Chapters 9 through 11 specifically, and again, I'm just doing 9 today, it is probably, if you were to talk to Bible scholars or, or pastors, it, it, a lot of them would agree that this is one of the most uh, debated, maybe most controversial, if not most misunderstood, chapters in the Bible. Um, There are scholars on both sides of this, and and you could could read the same scripture that I'm going to teach you here today and come to a different conclusion, and that's okay. That's okay. What I'm going to tell you, again, based on my study, based on what I feel that God has revealed to me, I'm going to walk us through the word and explain what this chapter is talking about. You may find in your studies that "I, I feel like There's a different way to look at this, and that's okay. Again, if you look at scholars, there are well-known scholars on both sides who argue this from different directions, and they're both interpreting Scripture correctly, and yet somehow they come to a different conclusion. It's one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's challenging. It's rarely you just read it and flat out, there it is, and it's straightforward. There's always an element of us seeking the Holy Spirit to have him illuminate that to us. And so before I even start at the message, I want to just take a second and just pray that the Holy Spirit would, would give us that revelation today. So would you join me in that? Father God, we just thank you, Lord, first of all, that you set your word down. You set your word down to us so that we can all have that rock, that foundation. We can read it for ourselves and we can study it for ourselves. And it is unchanging, But God, today specifically, I pray for that revelation, that revelation that can only come from the Holy Spirit directly to our hearts. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds and our ears to hear and see and feel things differently maybe than we've ever felt them or heard them. God, show us your heart in this today. The words that come out of my mouth, Lord, you promise that they will not return void. And so, Father, the things that I speak, which I believe you have led me to today, Father, let them, find, let them find a resting place in the hearts of those people that need to hear them. And let them hear them in the way you want them to hear. So, Father, we thank you, and we just lift this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, all right. So, Guys, the idea, chapter 9, talks about a lot of things, but really at its essence, and back in chapter 8, Pastor Jack kind of touched on this, the idea of foreknowledge and predestiny and the elect people, the elect of God, those things can really, really be a difficult concept to wrap your mind around. It can be a really difficult thing to reconcile the idea that God might create and set aside a certain number of people just for the purpose of being damned to hell. If you look at the idea of the elect, some people could easily conclude that there are people in this room who God has already elected, he has already chosen, and he foreknows that you are those people and you're gonna end up in heaven with him one way or another. However, there's another group of people, not making eye contact with anybody, <laughs> that no matter what they do, they're predestined for the scrap heap. There are people who believe that. There are scholars who believe that and teach that. And, it, and their teachings and their thoughts are based in the word. I think sometimes when we come to conclusions like that, we are a little too focused on the scholarly aspect of studying and parsing words, and we forget God's heart. I think if we filter those things, especially things that don't make a lot of sense to us. You ever read something in the Bible and go, that just doesn't make sense, that just sounds weird. Not, Not I don't get the language, but the thought behind this just doesn't. Makes sense to me. Whenever that happens, I want to urge you to dig deeper into that. Because almost always, if we filter those things we don't understand through God's heart, what we understand of God's heart, He's a loving Father. If we filter it through that, things suddenly make sense, sometimes in a different way. And that's where we're going to go. But if you look at the idea of, again, God electing and choosing some people ahead of time that They're just, no matter what we do, they're just not going to come to know Jesus and therefore are going to end up in hell. If we look at that, (coughs) you can see how you can read scripture sometimes and interpret it that way. Let me share one example with you. Pastor Jack taught about this last weekend, but I want to read this little section to you. This is Romans 8, 29 and 30. So just listen to the words. It's not on the screen. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these who he called, he also justified. And these who he justified, he also glorified. Okay, that sounds great if you're one of those he called. What if you're not? What if you feel like you're not one of those that he called? Does that mean you're just on the outside looking in and just destined to be looking through the window at everybody having that calling and that destiny inside? You could look at it like that. But I want to ask you this. Think about this question. And you don't have to shout out answers, but I want you to think about this. Would a loving Father God create a person or a people or an entire nation and put them on this earth, give them families, children, hopes, dreams, aspirations, joys. Would a loving God give them those things just to say it all ends here and you're destined for the scrap heap in eternity of hell? it just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And sometimes it's easy to look at the word and go, oh, that doesn't make sense. Everybody's going to end up in heaven, right? Okay. That doesn't make sense either. Because a loving God also has rules. And a loving God also requires things of us. Okay? Not the least of which is to Come to the knowledge and belief and faith in His Son Jesus. Okay, We can start there, but there are other things. there are other things, and we need to go into some of that. So this theology that I'm talking about, um, this idea, uh, again, of the, the elect and predestiny and pre, it kind of comes together in this, in this genre called pre, uh, uh, I'm sorry, called determinism, called determinism. If you' ever heard. The, the idea of determinism, that's what we're talking about here. And again, that can be a hard thing to talk about and hard, really a hard thing to wrap your mind about. I admit this is one of the hardest messages that I've written to date because I feel that God revealed his heart to me, but how to convey that was another thing entirely, and so that's where we're going. So again, I, ta- I talked about some very well-known theologians, some of which who have written uh, you know, a version of the Bible, a study Bible, that's got their name on it. So they're, okay, they've got some cred. And one of these theologians has a quote about the idea of determinism, and this is straight from his website. And he believes this, and so do many. God simply fashions some people for destruction in order to display his wrath and power, and other people for mercy in order to display his mercy. And then it goes on and says that he hardens the hearts of some and has mercy on others. Okay? Which, biblically, we see that that happens. But this is a this is legitimate theory that's out there based on study of the word, but I don't believe it lines up with God's heart. Why would God predetermine some to the scrap heap of hell, and then yet also give us free will. Why would he give us the ability to make all these choices, good choices, bad choices, and everything in between? We've got the ability and the freedom to make these choices. Why would he give us those choices only to say, really doesn't matter what you do because I've already decided. doesn't line up for me seems like they're opposites to me. But here's what I do believe. I do believe, again, when it doesn't make sense, filter it through what you know about his heart. A trust in Father God and his heart for you is key to our interpretation of the scriptures. Because this can either be an impossible book of rules, that there's no way you're going to live up to this, so you might as well quit now, or it can be a love letter from God to you. It can be an entire book full of promises, saying these are the things I've already done for you, these are the things I've always wanted for you, and these are the things I'm going to do for you. It's entirely different than a book of rules that's gonna be impossible to live up to, right? It comes through what filter we're using. Are we filtering that through the idea of a loving father? And if we do that, I think we're going to be right theologically more often than not. So here's what I do believe about predestiny, about the elect, and that subject of determinism. Here's what I believe. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He created the heavens and earth, and he is sovereign, and with that comes the understanding that he can do as he pleases. He doesn't have to ask for our permission. He doesn't have to explain it to us. It doesn't have to make sense to us. It doesn't have to be what we had in mind. And guess what else the idea of being sovereign comes with? He can change his mind. Ooh. Anybody struggle with the idea that God would change his mind? you change your mind, does that not somehow imply that maybe you were wrong? Maybe. That's a hard thing to struggle with, right? We're going to talk about that. Here's another thing. God, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything that ever was, everything that ever will be. He knows the decisions and choices you're going to make ahead of time. And he's not bound by time. He's not sitting way back 2,000 years ago going, man, way in the future, I hope they make the right choices. He's already been here and he's been there in the future and he knows the choices you made and he sees how they work together and he's everywhere. He knows everything. He's not bound by time. I believe that. But here's what I believe in a summary statement of what I believe about predestiny and election. Here's what I believe. God pre-knows our choices. He knows the choices we're going to make, but he does so without predetermining them or requiring them. He knows the choice you're going to make, but he doesn't require us to make that choice. For those of you who have kids, this might be easier to wrap your mind around, okay? You can put the healthy breakfast here, and you can put the pile of donuts here, and you know what they're gonna do. You want them to choose the healthy breakfast. You're hoping they do, but you're gonna give them the choice. What do you choose? You pretty much know what they're gonna do. Doesn't mean you still don't want them to make the right choice. I know it's kind of a flippant example, but we see it at that level in our own lives. So how could an all-powerful, sovereign, omniscient God not give us that same opportunity? I think he can. And then secondly, another thing I believe about predestining and election is that his calling for each of us, his individual calling is based on his foreknowledge of our decision about that calling. In other words, he may not call you to something that he knows full well you're not going to do. He will call you to things that are going to be within your capability, within the possibility of things you can do with the Holy Spirit's help, obviously. But he's not going to call you to do things that you're not equipped or willing to do. I believe that about foreknowledge and about predestiny. The things that he calls you to are things that he already knows you're capable of. You still have the choice. Not only do we have the choice, but we have the responsibility to answer that call. And then most importantly, especially in regards to chapter nine, what we're talking about here, chapter nine, when we start talking about predestining the elect and calling and things like that, it's very often used to point at the idea of individual salvation, okay? It very often is used for that. But in this context, he's not talking about, now granted, you can apply it to that in some cases, but you have to be careful. What he's talking about is nations. He's talking about nations, people groups, the the, the nation of Israel, specifically, is what he's pointing to here. Now, remember, the audience Pastor Jack pointed out last week, he's talking to a group of believers in Christ, okay? So that's already a subgroup of people, and that's what he's talking about, and he's trying to get across to them the idea, because they're starting to think, they're starting to think, well if we grew up observing the law as as part of the Jewish culture and we are the nation of Israel, God promised us, made a covenant with us that we are the elect. We are his special chosen people set aside from the beginning. And Paul's telling us that counts for nothing. Is that, how do we reconcile that? And Paul very astutely sees these are some of the questions they're starting to have, right? So he wants to answer that. He wants to answer that before, before they start thinking that it's, that it's completely a waste, and it's not. And he says it again and again, but he's got to revisit that idea. So another question I just want to throw out as I go through the rest of this message. Think about this. Have you ever thought about specifically how God chooses those he calls? How and why? What criteria does God use for those he calls? So think, think about, um, we even go back to Pharaoh and Moses. Okay, Pharaoh, um, king of the Egyptians, okay, and then Moses, a representative of the nation of Israel. Why did God choose Moses back then, he could have just as easily chose Pharaoh and said, hey, I'm putting my chips in this camp and, and we're back in Pharaoh in this thing. He could have. Why did God choose that? You know, the word says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, even to the point of, of making it difficult, if not impossible, for Pharaoh to know God. <coughs> think about that. Just think about that criteria, what, what God could be thinking as we go through this. And that's the question that Paul's trying to reconcile here as he explains to these people, this church in Rome, again, made up of, of people from different backgrounds, but all Christian believers at this point. And he's trying to explain to them the idea of God's sovereignty, what God's sovereignty really means. In other words, in, in this case specifically, has God, God has taken his chosen people, Israel, And has he discarded them entirely in favor of the Gentiles? This is the struggle that they're dealing with. So to go back to chapter 8, just the end of chapter 8, Paul ends chapter 8. He didn't call it chapter 8. He said this paragraph, okay? We call it chapter 8. But he ends it on a real upbeat note. I mean, this is This is happy, I'm gonna read it to you. Romans 8, 38, 39, it's the end of that chapter. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. That is a victorious and a hopeful promise, right? If you just grab that and hang on to that, one single scripture, that's, you could write that on your mirror and look at that every day. That's encouraging. That's good. But what if you're not certain you can trust God's heart? What if you read that and go, I see that he does that for some people, but what about for me? What if you're looking at instances in the Bible where it looks like He has changed his mind. Or you're listening to Paul's teaching and Paul's going, yeah, all that that promise, all that elect doesn't count for a lot. Like, wow, we spent our generations. My father's father's father was following the laws and the ordinances and trying to be a follower of God. And you're telling me it doesn't count for anything? So now can I trust the rest of this? That that's for me? This is where we are. So again, so let's go into into chapter 9. Just jump into that. Romans 9, 1 to 5. I'm going to start out and I'm going to read this part to you. So just listen to how Paul is opening up this. And again, he's shifting from that very last victorious, hopeful statement. And now he's shifting into this. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Wow! Victorious, hopeful, unceasing grief. For I wish that I could my that I wish myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. What he's saying here, in other words, he's, he's saying, look, the people of Israel, you're my brothers, and you're my sisters. Christ himself came from among you. You were given the covenants and the promises and you have all these things, but because of your horrible choices, I'm now in a place where I wish I could sacrifice myself for you because you are now on the outside looking in. Hmm. Cut off from Christ so that I could save them from their poor choices. Their poor choices have put them in this position. So, Paul here is saying, Your poor choices have put you in this position, and yet, again, God's covenant with the people of Israel, that's a hard thing to reconcile, I'm not gonna lie. So, let's move on. Let's look at Scripture and to kind of come to some answers for this. So, we've got this one on screen Romans 9, 6 through 8. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. And the word of God is still trustworthy. It hasn't failed. For they, are, for, the, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So what he's saying is there's a big difference between being being a blood relative, blood descendant, and being a true believer. To be a true believer means you have accepted that covenant yourself, and you have that covenant of faith in Christ Jesus. And they're not the same thing. He's saying you can have Jewish blood in you but that doesn't account for anything if you don't have the other. But if you have faith, then you've got it all. This is what he's trying to point out to them. Now he's reminding them, he goes back and he reminds them of some scripture in the Old Testament, some stories that they would have been very, very familiar with to kind of illustrate this point. Okay, so we've got this one too. This is Romans 9, um, 11 to 13. He's talking about how God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. Okay, remember, I told you, talked to you about choosing, Pharaoh, uh, choosing Moses over Pharaoh. Well, that theme kind of continues. How did God choose Isaac over Ishmael and then Jacob over Esau? We're going to look at this. Romans 9, 11 to 13. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older older will serve the younger, but just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That comes from Malachi. These, they weren't even born yet. At the time he's talking about this, again, it's written in Malachi, but at the time when God is speaking this to him, um, Jacob and Esau weren't even born yet and God, our loving Father God, that I'm trying to get us all to wrap our minds around, says, ah, I love Jacob, but I hate Esau. Does that even come close to jiving with a loving Father God? This unborn baby, I'm just going to go ahead and hate him. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. When it doesn't make sense, let's look at it deeper. First of all, That word hated, let's just dive right into that word hated. That word hated does not mean what we would ascribe to it, okay? It doesn't mean, I love you, I hate you. It doesn't mean that in the way we think of it. What that means is to choose one in favor over the other, okay? Or specifically, to renounce one choice in favor of another, you're choosing one over another. Doesn't mean you hate that one, and that one is destined for nothing and for hell. But it means for your purposes, you're choosing this one over this one. God has that sovereign right, and so when we look at this, He chose Jacob, uh, He chose Isaac over Ishmael, and He chose Jacob over Esau to accomplish His purposes. Okay, we can go in and we can talk about how they were born and was it a sinful thing and against the promises of God. That all plays into it, yes, but ultimately it's God's sovereignty. God said, I'm choosing this. I'm choosing this this child because this child will go forth to fulfill my purposes. And this is what he's doing. But again, it seems seems unfair that he's going to choose it. But remember that that's based on his foreknowledge of our response to his calling. How are we going to handle his calling on our life? And he knows ahead of time how we're going to handle that, and so he will choose you to accomplish his purposes, or he will choose someone else to accomplish that purpose. So again, if we go back to God's calling to Israel as, their chosen pe- as, as God's chosen people, is it possible... Just think about this, is it possible that an all-knowing sovereign God can be wrong? Think about that question. Better yet, rather than to use the word wrong, maybe it's easier to get our minds around if I say, is it possible that he can change his mind? Because in order to change your mind, you had to have your mind made up in one direction and then have a better plan or a different plan, right? And you move over to that. Insinuates wrongness at some level. Is that even possible? It's a hard thing. Romans 9:14 to 16. We've got that on screen then too. This is Paul's answer to that. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's all the way back in Exodus. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In context, this is Moses interceding for the people of Israel. He's praying to God for his people. And God is saying, Moses, I will grant you your prayers. I will grant you your requests and I will do these things for you. However, I am still sovereign. I am still sovereign God and I have the right and I reserve that right to make decisions as I see fit. I'm promising this to you today, but I'm gonna have mercy on who I have mercy and I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. And I'm granting your prayers but if things change, we're gonna revisit this. So if this idea, if we ascribe to this idea that as God is sovereign, chooses those he wishes, then there's not a lot we can do about it, right? Have you ever heard the phrase, his will be done? God's will be done, of course we have. Most of us have prayed that in situations where we didn't know what to pray. We've prayed it over sick people. We've prayed it over decisions that we want to make. Well, God's will be done. Okay. God's will be done if you really ascribe to that takes any actions out of our hands. It's saying, "Hey, this might be what I want, but whatever God wants." And I understand the heart behind that. God, you are you are sovereign, and so I'm not going to presume to say what you should do, but God's will be done. So many times we use that as a reason to just take our hands off the wheel, right? I'm just going to stand back and just see what happens because God's will is going to be done anyway. That is a deterministic point of view. That is, if you take that to the extreme, that's saying nothing I do can influence God's decision. So I might as well just be on board with God's decision and just say whatever he's planned and decided ahead of time, that's what's going to happen. It takes some pressure off us, right? That's not entirely the way God looks at that. We need to reconcile that we need to reconcile that deterministic idea again with the free will and the choices that god has given us and so let's look into this <clears throat> romans 9:19 9, to 21 basically you're saying hey if god has already decided these things you can't blame me i'm just along for the ride romans 9:19 9, to 21 you say to you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who will resist his will on the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Who are we to question? On the con- uh, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Can't blame me for the things that happened, God's the one that made me like this. And God decided he knew ahead of time what I was going to do. So none of it can be my fault, right? That potter and the clay analogy, we've, most of us have probably heard that at one time or another. It can be so misunderstood. I want to go as far as to say sometimes it can even be abused, if we take that potter and the clay idea, the, it, sometimes it's taught like this. Well, I'm, I'm just a lump. I was a formless lump, and God formed me into what he wanted me to be and sent me out into the world, and that's what I am. I have no ability to change that. I have, no, I have, I have basically no responsibility in this. That analogy is taught that way over and over again. We are, we are just lumps of clay in the potter's hand. But that's not how that's meant to read, okay? That's not what it's meant to to mean. First, Paul is referring, that's not, Paul didn't make that idea up. He's referring back to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18 uh, is actually where this idea is laid out. I'm gonna walk you through it step by step here, and I want you to kind of try and stay with me. There's a couple longer scriptures, but... But try and stay with me on this. First of all, we've got the opening one on screen. Jeremiah 18, 1-4. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Okay, so far so good. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hands of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Okay, anybody ever done pottery on a wheel? Okay, I've done it a couple times, mostly in high school. You get something and you're like, hey, that's pretty good. I kind of like that. Let me just tweak, oh, and it's, and it, and it next, now you just have a blob, because you touched it one too many times. That's what happens. Maybe it was a foreign object that was in there. Whatever it was, there was something in the way the potter had envisioned this to go. A picture he had in his mind, something he wanted it to look like, he had made it like that, he was getting there, and at some point he said, this is not turning out like I want it to turn out. So what's he do? Blobs it up again and remakes it into something else. The word says it was pleasing. If we look at that analogy with us, it starts to make sense. It starts to make sense how God can change his mind. And it goes even further. I don't, I'm not making this up. It explicitly states it like this. So that was 18, 1 to 4. <clears throat> I'm going to read you 18, 5 to 6, and then 7 to 10. We're going to read this whole thing. So 18, 5 to 6. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. Okay, so he's not drawing an analogy. He's specifically saying, house of Israel, you are just like that. You are just like that. So if you think God never changes his mind, you still think maybe what he foreknew is that's set in stone from the beginning of time? Listen to this part, Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Hmm. Wow. So, again, the Lord showed Jeremiah a potter who was working on a vessel that didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. So he revised his plan and formed something better out of it. Again, in the same way, he said this, this applies directly to the nation of Israel. I have a plan. I have a vision in my mind of what I want this nation of Israel to be. I plan to bless them. I plan to make them the carriers of my word, the bearers of my word and my witness to the world. That's my plan. But if it doesn't turn out the way that I planned, I revised the right To go to plan B. I reserve the right to go to plan B. That's what God does with us sometimes. He knows what he wants for us. He knows the plans that he has for us. And those plans, he's not lying. The word is not lying when it says his plans are for blessing and not for harm, for a future and for hope and for all the things a loving father would want for his child. But it requires our input. We don't just sit there and say God's got this and therefore whatever I do is not my fault. His plan is to bless you and he's got a certain idea and a way in his mind that this is gonna work out but he knows also that you may well make wrong choices. That you're probably gonna make bad choices. Take wrong turns here and there and he reserves the right to revise that plan. The end result is gonna be the same. How we get there changes based on our faithfulness to the calling that God has given us. Do you want to walk that straight plan, that shortest distance between two points and stay within his will? Then pray and listen to the Holy Spirit and respond to the leading from the Holy Spirit and walk that direction. Because that's our choice. We have the free will to say, God wants me to do this I'm not feeling that today. I'm going to do something else. God's heart is still to get you to the finish line, but he may change his plans. And how many blessings do we miss out on? Because we're not faithful to that calling and to walk where he wants us. We still think we need to inject our own ideas. That's what free will is. But our free will should be, God, show me yours. I want to follow that. That's where we are. So how do you relate this all to God's promise to Israel that they were his chosen people? Didn't he know ahead of time they were going to mess up? Just about every opportunity he gave them to mess up, he messed up, or they messed up. Just about every chance they had to take the wrong path, they did that. Didn't God know that? God knew that. But he still wanted and still wants to restore them back to that path. And we're going to see later on, he's got a plan for that too. But for now, he says, the nation of Israel can't be my carriers of the word anymore. So we're bringing the Gentiles into this. Plan B, if you will. We're going to bring them in and they are going to be the carriers of my word, the carriers of my son Jesus to the world. They're going to be my ambassadors. So many questions. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start coming up. Here's what I want you to remember, guys. When you don't understand, when you're seeing God's plan, I thought God planned this for me. I thought God planned this for the nation of Israel. Whatever that thing is, and you start doubting God's plan, look at his heart. Look at his heart for you. Look at his heart for the nation of Israel. His heart for you has never changed. Regardless of what you're going through, his heart for you has never changed. He loves you. And he decided that a long time ago. So God is sovereign, yes. God is holy, just, and righteous, yes. He is the potter and we are the clay, yes. But even in that, there's so much that we're not going to understand. And if we don't trust in his heart, if we don't have faith in who he is, now what we do is we start doubting his plan. And as soon as you start doubting his plan and his goodness, the enemy now has a foothold. And the devil's going to come into you and say, yeah, he lied about that other thing, so he lied about this, and therefore you can just regard everything. You're going to start seeing all these things that don't make sense to you as not I don't understand, but that God doesn't make sense. God's capricious. God's, uh, he works on a whim, changes his mind back and forth. That is not the way it is. Here's what you need to know about God's heart. I've quoted a lot of scripture. I've had a lot of it up on, the, up on the screen. Here's the one thing that I think if you know this and you think about this and you meditate about this, this will show you everything you need to know about God's heart. And I'm not gonna put it up on the screen because I bet the vast majority of us know this and we're gonna say this together. This is a little scripture called John 3.16. Would you quote this with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you know nothing more of God's heart than the fact that he would give his son for you, knowing your good choices and your bad choices way ahead of time, but still making a way, Still making a way for you to be reconciled to him. Church, that's a loving father. And that's all we really need to know. Amen. So as we close this message, I thought it was actually Friday night at about 11.30 p.m. I was putting the finishing touches on this, just trying to see if there's anything else I wanted to add. And God reminded me of a song. And he not only reminded me of it, but he burdened me so much that 1130 at night, I said a.m., I think, but 1130 p.m., 1130 at night, I'm texting Pastor Jack and Lauren and saying, can you guys fit this song in there any way you can play this song as our response? And they graciously agreed. So this song, the song's called I Breathe You In. And for our response, I just want you to sit in your chairs and just Listen. Just let the words of the song just wash over you and think about how they apply to you. In times when you don't understand and the choices that we get to make in that moment, will we trust his heart? Or will we need an answer? We need to trust his heart. When that's finished, Gabe and I will get up and we'll move around. We'll come over here and we can serve you communion. We have wine and bread and crackers here. At the crosses, we have juice you can serve yourself. But again, this first song, just soak it in. It's God's word, God's word for you. Thank you, guys.